We are going to jump back into the book of Daniel this morning, and uh, we are going to wrap this up pretty soon. So we're in Daniel 7, and uh, we're going to finish probably one more week, and the next week we'll cover chapters 8 through 12, because that's sort of a big chunk where um, there's a lot of apocalyptic imagery. So let me just start off by saying Daniel was probably written during the time um, of around, say, 200 uh, BCE, just before the time of Christ. So this is way after the exile of Israel, and, um, and they are still not um, a nation that's, you know, that's completely free. Uh, and so they are trying to make sense. A lot of stuff was written during that time period. Now, it doesn't mean that nothing was written before then. Uh, parts of Daniel, probably very old, um, parts of Daniel um, were cobbled together or uh, were added later. And then all of it was cobbled together right around that time frame. During that time frame, there was a type of literature that was super popular um, or it had become popular and it wasn't. Um, it wasn't, it had always been used, but it was during the period, this period of time, where you see a lot more of this um, kind of writing, which is called apocalyptic literature, okay? Apocalyptic is apocalypsis in Greek, which just means to unveil, to kind of pull the veil back, to, to enlighten, to open the eyes, right? So this is the name, by the way, of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation in Greek is actually apocalypse. It's, it's apocalypsis or, um, you know, that it's the, it's the unveiling, the revealing, right? So this is a revelation, right? That's how the book begins in, in Revelation chapter one. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ, an apocalypsis. It's an opening up of what is. Well, this kind of literature was pretty common. Apocalyptic literature is imagery, big picture, symbol. How many of you have seen Lord of the Rings? Uh, any of uh, any of Tolkien's trilogy there? Yeah, that's apocalypse. He built that. Uh, he was he was very very much into the Book of Revelation, into apocalyptic literature, and so he's highly influenced by that. That's where that's why he has a lot of symbol as opposed to direct metaphor. So direct metaphor is like a one to one comparison, like uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan, who is Aslan? Aslan is the Christ, right? That's that's more of a metaphor, one-to-one -one correlation. In uh, the Lord of the Rings, who's Gandalf? You know, Gandalf is a type of Christ, but he's also a type of a lot of other things. And so that's what symbol does. It's it's a bit broader. It's conveying a larger message. Um, and so that's what the Book of Daniel does. It's important to understand that because as we go into it, people sometimes take the Book of Daniel and try to make it into a metaphor. It's like, what does this stand for? Exactly. So when this happens, that means it's predicting this. And this is what we're to watch for because it's a because we think much more in metaphor than we do in symbol. Metaphor is more common to us. Uh, but during this period of time, 200 BCE to about 200 uh, CE, that's after the time of Christ, during that 400-year period, apocalyptic literature was fairly common. Um, and it used this kind of imagery uh, to convey a message. Okay, and so that's what we're after is what is the what is the message here? Um, so I'm going to um, share my screen here and um, we'll look at this chiastic pattern again as a refresher. This is what when we say that um, 
the book of Daniel chapters one through seven are, or two through seven, excuse me, are a four, it's a chiastic pattern. Here's what that means. Uh, chapter two is a dream of four kingdoms replaced by a fifth. Chapter seven, a vision of four kingdoms replaced by a fifth. Okay, so these are the bookends. Then you have this ever moving towards the crescendo, right? Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. Chapters four and five, Daniel interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter five, Daniel interprets the writing on the wall for Belshazzar, his grandson, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Okay. By the way, chapters eight and on are telescoping in on this section right here, this time period where Daniel is uh, under Belshazzar and has starts to have dreams and he writes these dreams down and uh and then he has the interpretation uh, given to him all right so this is the central theme daniel interprets a dream for nebuchadnezzar nebuchadnezzar gets it and what does nebuchadnezzar do he changes his mind right but before then what happens he loses his mind for a seven-year period right and he is becomes like a beast keep that in mind folks beast is always referring to something in the scriptures what does beast refer to put it in the chat if you've been paying attention what do beasts refer to all right so De nebuchadnezzar loses his mind he becomes a beast then he gets it and what happens is he realizes he has become an oppressor of people and he has become like a beast and because of that he calls out to god his mind is restored and then he ascends to the greatest heights of you know more glory than he ever had before conversely his grandson sees the handwriting on the wall <clears throat> but his grandson who should have known better doesn't get it and doesn't repent and so what happens is he dies off, Belshazzar is, is killed. And the point here that he's making is there is coming consequences for how you behave. If you oppress other people, the consequences will come and you will lose everything you have. You will eventually go down in flames. Judgment always comes. So the idea of judgment is the idea of consequences, consequences coming to you. And, um, and so that's what the thrust here is. So when you see dream of four kingdoms replaced by a fifth, this is the start to this idea of what's going to happen with a, the, the main point that Daniel is making right in the center there, is that these kingdoms are going to be replaced because they're oppressive kingdoms. And they're gonna be replaced by a fifth. And notice what the fifth is. It is not a beast, it's a human. So let's look at Daniel chapter seven, and we'll, we'll read that. How many of you, by the way, have read Daniel, read Daniel seven and Daniel chapter two? All right, all right, excellent, excellent. Starting to lose your steam about Daniel. Well, well don't worry about it. We're gonna jump off to a new book next week, or not next week, the week after. All right, so let's look at uh let's look at daniel chapter seven 
in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And the visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Okay, keep in mind, apocalyptic, big picture movies. This is an ancient form of writing a big picture movie. Um, it's to evoke something inside you. It's to give you a sense. It's to be more than just words, but it's to affect you at an emotional level. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being with the mind of a human was given to it. Okay, you, you get this picture, right? So this is a grotesque image of a beast, but it's, it still has a human mind. And there, and there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked and before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard on its back. It had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening, very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had 10 horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And the first and the three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now, most scholars believe that this is Antiochus Epiphanes, the, uh, the cruel, very cruel uh, Seleucid um, king who uh, came against Israel um, in, in, during, during his time of reign, which was between, he was born, I think, 215 BCE. So um, again, right around the time that this book is, is being written, it's being written about probably about this, including this guy who's, who's uh, come against the Jews and persecuted them like really bad. Uh, he was probably one of the most evil, uh, boastful kings. As I looked, their uh, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was as white as snow. Uh, the hair of his head was like, was white as wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because, uh, watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed, thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was like, the, was one like a son of man coming in the clouds or with the clouds of heaven okay son of man ben adam 
Okay, this is son of the human one. This is essentially the same thing as saying he was human. Okay, so some people get really like, um, you know, like, you know, confused with this because they think it it refers to Jesus specifically, or it's a prophecy about Jesus. Uh, not directly. This is speaking of human, the human one. Jesus actually referred to himself in the same way as the human one. Okay. This is in line with the thinking of the ancient world. Again, beasts, these corrupt systems of power versus humanity, the best of what humans look like. That's the imagery. This is why I'm calling this the title of this sermon, Beasts and Humans. Okay. This is very much the image, the contrast that's being drawn here that, that Jesus carries into his own work and ministry as well. Okay, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay, this is the Ancient of Days. This is the, the, um, uh, the, the, the divine God, right? Uh, God who becomes flesh, right? Every time. That's the point. That's the movement. God becomes flesh in Christ, in Jesus. God becomes flesh in the church. Uh, we are the body of Christ. We are God in the flesh, right? That's the, that's the continuation of this flow. Israel was to be God in the flesh, uh, and uh, and that is the 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 best of humanity is is the divine present within us. Okay, the interpretation of the dream. I Daniel was troubled in spirit, and the visions passed before my mind uh, that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. There's a kingdom, a fifth kingdom. That kingdom is a kingdom of humanity. It's a kingdom of humans, not a kingdom of a beast that rules others oppressively, but that which is very deeply human. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all others. And Terrifying with its iron teeth, bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot wherever, whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the 10 horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before the three of them that fell. The horn that looked more imposing than others that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, the horn was waging war against the holy people and defeated, defeating them. Okay, Likely Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Okay, again, not one-to-one -one correlations. Metaphors are. This is probably referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, but then it expands and goes way beyond that. And it says basically any system that is oppressive, that is evil, that worships itself, that causes other people harm, these systems will come down. And this is what the prophets in the Old Testament repeat over and over. It, it doesn't matter whether it's a Jewish system of oppression or a Roman or a Babylonian oppress, oppressive system. All of them will come down. And what will replace that is one 
that is deeply human filled with God. He gave me this expression in verse 23. The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trampling and crushing it. The ten horns are the ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the early ones. He will subdue the three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change and set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. This is confusing, but essentially what it means that whenever you see a half a time, the idea is disruptive. It's a disruptive idea. It's like an incomplete time, okay? Let me pan out a little bit. Numbers in the ancient world were never literal. <laughs> I can't say this enough because it drives me nuts when I see stuff written about like, these numbers mean this, and there's a, you know, this is exactly what it means. And so God is going to return at such and such a time or, you know, numbers or not, they weren't literal ever. And still parts of the world today, underdeveloped or undeveloped parts of the world where people still live very much like they did several thousand years ago. They, they still use numbers in that way. If you go and visit, the, the, the numbers are not important. It's not the, the specific scientific idea of a number is not important. Scientific meaning like, is there empirical? Is there, can we test and measure that? So they'll say, yeah, thousands of people were there. I had a friend who was from um, a part of, of India where it was very, very rural. So, they, they, you know, very undeveloped. And, and to them, it was like he would say, oh, yeah, there were thousands of people there. Right. And then he showed me the picture and it was really a few hundred people. But it didn't matter. That wasn't the point. The point wasn't that. Right. In the scientific sense of things, we want to be exact. But in the heart center, the feeling we have. You ever been in a car accident? Anyone? You with me? Still listening? Still paying? <laughs> You're in a car accident. Do you say like, oh, yeah, it was a little, you know, yeah, no, not a big deal. It's like, yeah, so technically what happened is um, um, I was driving at 32 miles per hour and this person went through the intersection and um, totaled my car, essentially, you know, uh, and then you go into describing the panel and the engine and everything else that was ruined. And, and, then, you, and then you leave it there. You're just like, yep, that was the accident. No, you say something like, it was crazy. Time slowed down. I was, my car was like, I was flying. And I, was, I mean, the descriptive words, you're over the top in the way you describe that experience because that's what it felt like here. This is also very much an ancient way of looking at all things was in that sense. So when they're talking about numbers, numbers are used in these ways. Seven is the number of perfection. Three is a holy number, Trinity. Four, four is a number of the complete sense of the world. Like this covers the whole world. Ever hear the term four corners of the earth? Are there four corners, literally? Anyone? Does the sun literally rise and set? Anyone? <laughs> no, these are called... These are called metaphors. These are called symbols. The, the idea is to communicate totality, the entire world, the four corners of the world. So four kingdoms covers the idea of all kingdoms, whether today, tomorrow, or in the future, any kingdom that oppresses other people. 
that crushes them, that only cares about its existence, these kingdoms will fall. Amen? These kingdoms will come down. And what will replace that is a kingdom made of people that actually deeply care about other people. And that is the future. And that is also the present. That is what we're working towards. And so the number four, this idea. So when it's a, a time, times and a half, it's an incomplete sense. You're supposed to leave you with that sense of, ah, it's not complete. It's not yet there. Okay. And so this is the time, uh, verse 26, but the court will, uh, the, but, but the court will sit. This power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under the earth, or under heaven, rather, uh, will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. <laughs> But listen to how it finishes. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Notice this reaction is not one of like, yeah, yours is coming. <laughs> you know, like there's none of this sort of vengeful, boastful reaction by Daniel. Instead, his face is pale. He doesn't fully understand what this means. Later, this, this idea will be repeated, by the way, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, I believe. It's several times it's repeated where he is disrupted. He is unsettled by this. In part, I believe, because the holy ones are not defined. This is not a defined thing like, the Jews, you're going to win. Don't worry about it. It's the people who are going to follow the people who are going to be found in the book of life. That's where the book of life, by the way, shows up. It's in the book of Daniel. It's this idea of the true people, the true people who are truly following, not people who are in a system, a religious system, but the people who are genuinely following God. Um, so who are the beasts? The beasts are these grotesque uh, beings meant to symbolize and represent all systems, political or religious systems, okay? In the ancient world, there was no separation between the two. We can and we do today, but there was none in those days. Political, religious, and economic were blended as one. There was, that's why it was very systemic, very integrated. And this kind of thing is always, these systems always go bad. They always do. They become oppressive. This is the book of Kings. If you ever read the book of Kings, it's frustrating, right? As we talked about, it's up and down, right? But what ends up happening? All the Kings end up being oppressors. That's the problem. That's fundamentally the problem that the old Testament is dealing with. Okay. So when you hear stuff about idol worship, right. Or sexual immorality, when you read about those, those are in the context of this thing of what they were doing, which was oppressing other people. They were harming people. The interest of the system was for its own survival. And people were, well, you're serving the system or you're controlled by it. You work for the system or you're, you, uh, you are served by the system. But if you speak up against it, watch out. 
Watch out what ha watch what happens to you when you dare to speak up. That's ultimately what got Christ killed was because he kept insisting on justice, on goodness, on love for all people and that got him killed. Because when you confront the system, when you point out its errors, when you say this shouldn't be, this is wrong, the system reacts against you. That's how you know there's a system. Anybody who doesn't think there's a system, try speaking out against it. You'll find out there's a system. And by the way, you'll find out that, there's a, that there are plenty of people who are complicit, who want to be part of that system, who aren't maybe paid by that system, but who, are be who benefit from it. And so there's a reaction. So this is what he's, uh, uh, he's uh, pointing out to is the beasts become ugly. They become grotesque. They are because they have lost a few things. Let me talk about the first thing that the beasts, um, the reason why they are different from what makes them different from, uh, from the son of uh, the human one, right? That's literally the translation, the son of Adam, right? Or Adam in Hebrew. Adam is simply the human. That's it. It's, it's the, it's um, Eve is the mother of all living things, right? So these are metaphorical terms, symbolic terms to represent humanity. And this is the contrast Daniel is bringing. Humanity versus these beasts. When political systems get to a certain point, you know it, folks. Think about your work. Think about places you've been to that have had systems like churches. Think about um, um, an organization that had been around for a while that you worked for. Think about those times when you started to see that the system itself was not treating somebody fairly. Or maybe it was you. And watch what happened. Did you notice that when you spoke up or said anything, there was silence? There was a reaction. The reaction was either silence or they silenced you or something, but it did, did not go well for you. Many of you have experienced that, being part of a system where you spoke up against something that was not going right. Someone was being hurt by the system. And what happened? Almost always, you, uh, the stories, the few stories that I hear of like this system actually saying, oh, we're sorry. We realize that we're harming somebody. Now, I'm not talking about when they get exposed publicly. You know, when all of a sudden the media is like reporting on it and all of a sudden, you know, the, the CEO comes out and says, yeah, my, we apologize. We, there was, you know, that was a, a misjudgment on our part, you know, some BS apology that comes out. And then after that, it's like, you know, uh, it, it, then suddenly that person gets some kind of justice. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when it's not reported. And this, this sort of thing happens. Systems always go dark unless they are challenged by prophets. This is what is consistent in the Old Testament. The prophets are there to challenge the system, to point out this is not good. This is a kind of oppression. This is a kind of idol worship. And ultimately the idol worship is the worship of oneself, the worship of the system, the worship of you know, greed, money, these things. Um, that's what this is. So, these systems are beasts because they have lost their empathy. They no longer feel for other people. This is what I have to constantly ask myself. 
is where am I in that process? Because I pastor a church. So if there's any kind of judgment that comes, it comes against me because I'm in that position. I can't stand here and sit there and point, I can't point out to everybody else's, you know, all the other systems and how corrupt they are. I, I have to look at me. I have to look at my system. I have to look at what I'm doing. Then I have to ask myself, have I lost my heart? I can make excuses. I could say, well, you know, I've had a hard week or you, you know, people are just being buttheads, you know, whatever I can, I can say all these things. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. As I said last week, the thing that God is consistent about in the Old Testament is God does not listen to the excuses of the rich, but the cries of the poor. This is remarkable to me is that in our world, there is very little in this debate about justice and about politics, about this very little biblical awareness in the church I'm talking about. I'm not talking about outside the church, in the church. It's like there's a forgetting that God specifically says over and over again in the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, if the poor cry out to me, I will come against you. It's like, well, the rich could have said, well, wait, what about our case? What about our justice? What about, they could have said that, right? but that's not in there. That's not in the text. Because the idea of power, the idea of privilege, the idea of having something means that if you live from a scarcity mindset, from a poverty mindset, it means that you hoard. It means that you keep it from other people. You protect yourself above other people. But in a mindset that is a kingdom mindset, that is a godly mindset, it is one that says, I have an abundance because I'm connected to the source of all things, the divine God, the ancient of days, whose endless store of provision is already mine. And if I live from that mindset, then I can give. I don't need to withhold, even if I feel like I get very little. So we tap back into the heart. Where is my heart in all of this? That's the difference between being human, a son of the human one, or a son of humanity, versus being the son of a beast. Being a child of the beast, being one who is part of the system that is a beastly system. Whenever you see, by the way, that phrase of the world, of the world, it's not talking about of this physical world. It's not talking about, of, it's talking about the patterns, the systems of the world. So why does a prophetic word come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord your God? Okay? It's coming out of these systems, the systems of scarcity, of poverty that want to withhold and thus begin to oppress other people. Okay. What else? So empathy. Secondly is the ability. What happens with beasts is they don't have an ability to self-reflect. There's just a movement from stimulus to response. It's like, I'm hungry, I eat. I'm angry, I kill. I'm afraid, I run. That's it. Come on now, how many of you, you were hungry and you just got up and went to the fridge mindlessly and started, I'm the only one who does that? Come on. <laughs> 
it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm grazing right now. What is, what the, what the hell is, I'm, I'm walking around looking at the fridge, like look, opening cupboards and like grabbing stuff. And like, what is, what is wrong with me that I'm just grazing, right? With no self-reflection, I'm just eating. And if I stop, I go, wait, 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 what's, why am I eating? And I'm not, oh, look at that. Joe's got the goods. Hey, by the way, if you ever want to graze and really graze good, you want a good farm, like go over to Joe's place. He's got, uh, he's got the best Italian meatballs. Danielle, you've got like, your food is amazing. Uh, I thank you for that incredible manicotti. I don't even know what it was, but it was so good. I ate like half of it in one setting. So, um, you know, but this sort of like mindless, just moving through the world is something that happens to all of us, right? And so the idea of moving from being a child or a son or a part of the system that is beastly is our ability to self-reflect. Viktor Frankl, I've referred to him so many times. Um, one of the most brilliant books, by the way, psychologists refer to it all the time, but it's his account of what happened. And he's a psychologist. He did a lot of research and study even while he was in the concentration camps himself and, um, and observed the difference between what would happen when humans lost their humanity and lost their minds and those who did, those who managed to keep it and what was happening there. And that's the way the phrase stimulus and response comes from, is that he would watch as people lost themselves and became like beasts. And they would just find a morsel of bread or of cheese, and they would just consume it. No reflection, no thought. And then every once in a while, he would see someone who would grab it and just about to eat it, stop themselves. And he would watch that stop. That was stimulus to response gap. He, they paused and they put a space between that and they would look around and they would break off a tiny piece and give it to another. And he says, those people managed to keep their minds. You think about Nebuchadnezzar losing his mind. It's exactly that. You get to a point where you are so just consumed by taking in I don't think oppressors feel like they're not oppressed themselves. I don't think that's true because that's not true of me. It's not true of you. We always have a reason. It's like, well, you know, I need this. I need this. That ability to slow down, to pause, to ask yourself that question, the self-reflection. Another one is, do you have the ability to change your mind? Because Nebuchadnezzar did. Or are you like Belshazzar, no capacity to change your mind? That's the difference. Because a beast doesn't change their mind. But a human does. When was the last time you changed your mind? When was the last time you had a moment of just like, oh, wow, I see. I see, I see, I get it. That's, that's what makes us different. Lastly, the idea we are consumed, by the way, let me just, so this final thought is not, is, is what happens to, um, to us who are not leaders of a system, but who are maybe part of it in some way or beneficiaries of the system. 
So you think about ideas. So Dostoevsky, a Russian novelist, um, brilliant, brilliant mind, said that I, he saw that in his one of his novels, Brothers Kazimov, he um, describes how people have an idea. People think they have ideas. It's not really always true. Many times it's the idea has the person. And what that means is that we begin to lose our own original, our own creativity, our own identity, and we lose it. And instead, we have been taken over by the idea. So let me describe it in real terms today. This is what, hap this is, what is happening politically in our country. I'm watching it happen where increasingly there is a loss of the sense of the self. We are losing ourselves in the world of these ideas that now own us. People are binging like they've never binged before. Reading, reading, reading articles, all the stuff that supports their ideas. And by the way, that's what social media, that's what Google does, is it sees you click on something, sees you hover over something. And so, oh, there's an interest. And the algorithm says, pump it full of more of that. That's the reason why if you Google the same question that I Google, you'll get a bunch of different results than I will. The system is designed to keep you pursuing the ideas that the ideas eventually own you and you're enslaved by them. You no longer are creative. You're no longer living your own life. This is what has happened. This is the reason why there's so much of this stuff of like, you know, getting caught up in things like drama, like who did what? Oh, did you hear about this? And there's an energy boost inside of us when there's a little drama. That's the thing that gives us life. Or there's a, a or, or the political field or the or, or the religious sphere. People jump into religions oftentimes because of that. There's something that they can escape into. There's something that the that they can be consumed by another idea. And we do this because we actually don't want to live what is ours to live and do. Because if you were to do the thing that you're here on earth to do, that God has created you for, that you were to tune in to your own soul, your own heart, and say, what do I love? What is it that I want to provide in this world and leave this world with? What contribution do I want to make? What is it that I want to be said of me when I'm long gone? What am I leaving in this world? What footprint am I, am I, am I leaving? And we would rather have these ideas own us, be caught up in politics, religion, caught up in, you know, being like anti-masker or anti-vaccine or whatever it is that we get caught up. And folks, I say this with a lot of love and grace, but those are the things that we get caught up in that end up owning us instead of us actually living out and saying, ah, those things are secondary. Uh, you know, those things are not the thing that it's about. The thing that it's about is me living what God has given me to live and to do. What is mine? What is my contribution to this world? Living as a human instead of like a beast. And so my friends, I believe this is why Daniel's face turns pale at the end. It's because he realizes something. There's a lot of probably reasons for why his face turned pale. One of them was he didn't fully understand what this meant. Take several more chapters of him trying to ask and asking God, what is this? And in the end, I think he also realizes like, 
when the book of life is open, the question isn't whether I'm Jew and I'm part of it, whether I'm Republican and so therefore I'm in the right, or I'm Democrat, therefore I'm in the right, or I'm a Christian, therefore I'm in the right, or I'm an evangelical, therefore I'm, in, or I'm part of the vineyard, part of Vine 39, therefore I'm in the right, or I'm in this, therefore I'm in the right. But rather that we all are part of this human race and it is about whether I'm part of a system that's oppressing, getting caught up in the system that just harms me and harms other people, or am I exiting it and discovering that I am truly human, filled with the divine here to join in, now listen to me carefully, to join in the very first commission that was ever given to humanity, according to at least the, 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 the writer of Genesis, which is that you and I are here to guard, to protect, to develop this garden, to actually expand it and make the entire world into an abundant, fruitful garden that serves all people. My friends, this is your commission. This is your commission. It's easy to find the evil that we think we see in the world and turn our attention to the evil that we think that's in the world versus turn to the Tension of the call that is ours to produce fruitful living. And we know it when we live from a place of peace. Let me ask you a question. Does the idea that you have create love in you? Does it create peace? Does it create joy? Does it create kindness towards other people? Self-control, the fruit of the spirit. That's how you know if something's really fruitful. Is it from God? If I'm living out my truth, what I'm to do in this world as a contribution, it's going to scare the heck out of me, but it's also going to produce tremendous fruit. So with that, my brothers, my sisters, my family, Vine 39, with all the love that I can feel right now in this moment for you, I urge you, to come out from among them, truly be separate. Getting into this is going to produce consequences when we live for the beast. We're part of a system that's going to go down. When we live as a human one for the king of kings, it produces tremendous fruit. I love you dearly. I encourage you encourage you, plead with you. I need you to live your calling. You need you to live your calling. Let's do it.